wrote this book in part because I felt that the left in America was underestimating the importance of emotion in politics. And I think that Donald Trump winning this election has not only proved me right, in my opinion, but he's also dramatically raised the stakes. That's Jeremy Young, an historian at Dixie State University and the author of The Age of Charisma, Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society from 1870 to 1940. Today we hear from Jeremy about the role that charismatic leadership and emotional appeal have played in American politics. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. At the end of the 1800s, American political leaders started to use new techniques, particularly a unique brand of public speaking and emotional appeal, in order to attract large numbers of followers to their causes. This new method of political speech and leadership gave rise to what our guest Jeremy Young calls the age of charisma. I asked Jeremy about that age, and how it made clear that politics isn't just about reasoned argument, but emotional appeal. In our conversation, Jeremy explores the age of charisma from beginning to end. He also describes its legacy, and whether we can understand the victory of President Trump, as well as the reemergence of populist enthusiasm in American politics as extensions of that age. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Well, Jeremy Young, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So you've written a book out from Cambridge University Press called The Age of Charisma, Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society from 1870 to 1940. Your book takes up the role of charisma in political life, how politics work based not just on reasoned argument, but on emotional appeal, and how some speakers are better at making such emotional appeals than others. So could you talk about that? What's sort of the main argument or position of your book? My book argues that the modern emotional connection between leaders and followers in America grew out of this unique group of charismatic social movements that were prominent in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So I've identified a distinctive style of public speaking that people in the late 18th, uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries called personal magnetism, which had some distinctive speech characteristics and which was very emotional and inspired a great deal of emotional response from audience members that really had never been seen before in American history. And a lot of what I do in the book is spend time analyzing the letters and testimonials of those followers of these charismatic leaders and try to understand what their experience was like and how important it was to them. It turns out it was very important. It was volitional. It was intentional. And they saw themselves as creating major social and political change by following charismatic leaders. And ultimately, I argue that the this, these charismatic movements changed the culture of leadership in the United States by moving from a culture of emotional distance where presidential candidates were not even supposed to campaign before the 1870s for fear that they'd be influenced by, uh, by the people and would become demagogic and not use their own impartial reason to govern, to a culture where modern presidential candidates 
have to shake hands and kiss babies and give speeches and be emotionally available to their followers, even if they're not particularly good at it. Uh, and that, I think, is a democratic element in our culture and in our society that we tend to take for granted. And it is a legacy of these charismatic movements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So, Jeremy, before we then just sort of dig into some of those main claims, I have some questions about them. Uh, I, I want to ask sort of quickly, just as a kind of teaser for listeners, about the ways in which you see charisma working in American politics today. So what, of course, comes to mind is the election of uh, President Trump, who was often during the campaign dismissed as a demagogue, but of course whose rallies were highly attended. So in a, in a recent article, you write, quote, the rise of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders came in large part through high-octane rallies that drew thousands of passionate supporters. Clinton, in contrast, promoted a transactional form of politics in which policy wonkery took center stage and emotion lagged behind. Trying to stir up the passions of people, Clinton opined in October 2015, is what a demagogue does. Now, looking back, Clinton's sort of dismissive attitude toward a certain politics of emotional appeal seems fatal. But I'm wondering, you know, to what extent was it actually fatal? How much of a role do you think charisma, as you understand it, and as you have analyzed it, played in election 2016? Well, it was a, a very interesting election for someone uh, just finishing up a book on charisma, that's for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, when I watched the rallies that Donald Trump was holding and the rallies also that Bernie Sanders was holding, which were mm. also very, very emotional and, and, and drew record numbers of crowds, I thought to myself, I've seen this before. This looks exactly like what I was seeing in my in my research. Now, I want to be clear here. It's not exactly the same. Neither Donald Trump nor Bernie Sanders uses the charismatic speaking style that the, my research subjects used. But the way that their audience responded to that and continues to respond to them is very similar, very, very similar. Um, I read an article recently, in fact, by a minister who attended a Trump rally just this past weekend in Florida, who felt uncomfortable because he said that it felt like cult worship hmm. um, because of the way that the audience members responded. And we tend to have a negative attitude toward that sort of emotional connection between leaders and followers. But my argument, of course, is that it, it can, in certain circumstances, be healthy. So to get back to your question, how does charisma play a role in this campaign? I think that, uh, I, I mean, I, I guess I would say I wrote this book in part because I felt that the left in America was underestimating the importance of emotion in politics. And I think that Donald Trump winning this election has not only proved me right, in my opinion, but he's also dramatically raised the stakes because now if you look at the things that the Trump administration is preparing to do, the rollbacks of, of protections for LGBT people, the um, deportations that are on the docket, the trade agreements that are being scuttled, the politics is being played for all the marbles right now. And Democrats need to learn how to win elections again. And Donald Trump showed that you can win elections through emotional appeals. And Democrats, I think, need to embrace those emotional appeals if they have any hope of stopping what Trump is trying to do. 
So I have a number of questions about what you just said, but I, I just want to start with a point you made right at the beginning, which is that the sorts of emotional appeals or the kind of politics of charisma that um, both Trump and Sanders used, obviously in some different ways, um, neither of those are the same as what, uh, neither of those are exactly the same as what you examine in your book. So I'm wondering, could you take us through the general story that your book tells about emotional politics and charisma around the turn of the century? So where do you start in that story and where do you end up? Where we start is with uh, uh, basically politicians in the 1860s and 70s and 80s who, by and large, were were not emotionally engaged with voters and, in fact, were not supposed to be emotionally engaged with voters. There was a sense at the time that a politician who tried to campaign or who tried to appeal emotionally to voters was manipulating the voters and was dangerous and was really more like a king than like a democratic politician. And in fact, you hear stories about, for instance, John Quincy Adams uh, saying that he he would be grudgingly willing to serve in, the, in US, the US Congress, but he wouldn't campaign for it and he wouldn't even admit to wanting it. And that's what you were supposed to do in that time period. What happens is, Beginning in the 1870s and 1880s, this new style of public speaking emerges um, in which politicians and other figures, religious leaders, social activists, begin to express themselves in a way that has a dramatic emotional effect on audience members. And they do this in part because American society is undergoing an enormous upheaval, uh, industrial capitalism, this new economic system that transforms America into an urbanized uh, society full of factories creates so many social upheavals that Americans are longing for what Jackson Lears, the historian, describes as intense emotional experience to essentially reconnect them with their roots in, in the sort of pre-industrial society. And one of the things that they latch onto is this new type of charismatic speaking style. And so all of a sudden, voters become very attracted to politicians such as William Jennings Bryan, who gives a, a speech in 1896 at the Democratic National Convention that is so emotional that he essentially wins the nomination for president despite being a virtual unknown, and then goes throughout the, the entire country delivering six speeches a day for the next three months and, and building that emotional connection with followers all over the country. Um, James Blaine, whose nickname was the Magnetic Man because of his use of the style of personal magnetism, does similar things earlier in the 1880s. Uh, by the 1910s, Progressive leaders such as Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson attempt to use this style uh, to win elections, although they aren't nearly as successful as Bryan and others were. And the style really persists into the 1920s when the arrival of mass media, primarily the radio, makes it largely obsolete. The style of personal magnetism doesn't sound very good on the radio because it's, it really requires an in-person connection with an audience. It, over the radio, personal magnetism sounds over-the-top, histrionic, uh, maybe even a little unhinged. And so what we end up with is 
Franklin Roosevelt delivering fireside chats, which don't use the personally magnetic speaking style, but which do include this sort of emotional connection between leaders and followers. Franklin Roosevelt effectively comes into people's living rooms through their radio sets and speaks directly to them. And this cements the idea of a charismatic emotional relationship between leaders and followers um, and it really doesn't change after that. Politicians still do the same thing today. They come into our living rooms through mass media. They talk to us directly, um, and that is how politics happens. So I'm wondering, you, you mentioned um, you started with William Jennings Bryan, and correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't actually, when he just sort of deployed that technique, he became very popular. Did he actually get elected to office? He didn't get elected to office, okay. um, and that goes to an important, Important point. It's not clear that personal magnetism or charisma or this emotional connection increased vote totals for hmm. politicians. What is clear is that it increased the intensity of, of voters' commitment to those politicians. So if you read letters written to, say, Benjamin Harrison, a presidential candidate well known for not being particularly charismatic, People will write to him and say, I read your speeches and I like them very much and you're a good guy and I hope you win and that's all great. But then you read the letters that people write to Brian and they, they call him Moses. They call him Jesus Christ. They say that they are going to give up their business and go volunteer for his campaign full time. So charisma – oh, they also uh, name their children <laughs> after Brian, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of people named their children after Brian, including one uh, family that included a lock of their child's hair in the letter, which is incidentally still there. If you go to the Library of Congress, mm. you can find this lock of a child's hair in, in a letter. And what happens is charisma creates, turns voters who might turn out to vote for a candidate or who might not even turn out to vote for a candidate, and it turns them into committed volunteers and activists. So it's not a strategy that necessarily wins votes, but it's a strategy that builds organization. So why did uh, so? So your book examines the late 1800s through about 1940. What did, did the age of charisma, as you understand it, end around that time? And if so, why? That's a good question. To answer that, I I want to explain that charisma, as I define it, is essentially three interlocking or overlapping phenomena. First, charisma is the speaking style of personal magnetism. Second, charisma is the relationship between magnetic leaders and their followers. And third, charisma is a discourse of democracy. It's a way of talking about the role of ordinary people in government and the role of emotions in politics. And so the speaking style dies out with the advent of radio. Uh, that's just gone with the beginning of radio. Um, the emotional connection really doesn't go away. It really continues all the way through the present day. Um, and the, as does the discussion about democracy and the role of emotions in politics. What's interesting is that the 2016 election has brought back some of the charismatic techniques that were prominent in the age of charisma, mostly not the speaking style itself, but a lot of the technologies that surrounded the speaking style, such as in-person campaign rallies centered on a candidate, um, rallies that uh, feature a musical performance before the beginning of the candidate's speech, um, 
And these technologies of charisma have surprisingly returned. They were gone for almost a century because uh, of the importance of advertising in politics, which simply overwhelmed these in-person strategies. But Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders both uh, figured out ways to use these rallies to combat advertising dollars effectively. In Trump's case, he really by almost by trolling the media, by indicating that every one of his rallies was going to be newsworthy even when it wasn't, by saying that his rally would have a major announcement and then not making the announcement. He convinced the media to cover a lot of his rallies on national television, which allowed him to have both the in-person impact with the voters, but also to, to essentially use rallies as an advertising technique. And in Sanders' case, he used techniques originally developed by Barack Obama with Organizing for America to monetize the rallies that he was holding. He collected email addresses. He sent out emails to the people who showed up at the rallies, and he then raised enormous numbers of small-dollar donations, which then allowed him to advertise largely on the strength of those rallies and the money that they brought in. So uh, the one thing that you mentioned about uh, the ways in which uh, charismatic discourse didn't even work in the late 1800s or the early uh, 1900s is that if you say heard it on the radio or basically you 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 heard a speech but not in person the speaker w would perhaps seem a bit unhinged or manic um it does remind me of some of the commentary about uh president trump when he first started going on his when he first started his campaign essentially is that some of his speeches just seem sort of well they certainly seemed off the cuff they also made him seem a bit unhinged. Um, why, I suppose, why didn't that approach necessarily always work in the in the time that you studied, uh, the historical time that you studied this movement? And why do you think that started to work again today? Why did this actual rhetoric of, of near mania actually sort of uh, grab people's attention and, 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 and um, inspire them into political action? That's a good question. I would say that uh, there were criticisms, as you said, of people in in the age of charisma, in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, uh, criticisms of them using these these emotional techniques. The, the most important critic of personal magnetism was the editor of the Louisville Cour Courier Journal, a Democratic politician named Henry Watterson. And Watterson believed that all charisma was demagogic and dangerous. Um, and there's this wonderful editorial of his that I found written in 1904, where he, as the Democratic newspaper editor, his job is to defend uh, Alton Parker, the boring and colorless uh, state Supreme Court judge from New York City who was running against Theodore Roosevelt uh, in an election that Parker essentially had no chance in. And Watterson argues that uh, Parker's dullness is the is the precise reason that he is the best candidate. He says Theodore Roosevelt is dangerous, and because Parker, the, the quote is, uh, because Parker uh, fits like an old shoe and he looks like one and wears like one, that's the reason <laughs> that, he's, that he's a good president, because he won't do anything just to manipulate people. He'll only act if something is necessary. Mm. So that's the argument that's being made in the, the age of charisma. I would say it's not 
really a dominant argument in that time period. Most politicians and most Americans want to see charisma used in that period. What changes after that, of course, is uh, very simple, two words, Adolf Hitler, uh, who, who uses not the same charismatic style, but the same general idea of whipping up his followers emotionally to do horrible things, to do genocide, to do the bloodiest war in the 20th century. And Americans have a tendency to think about charisma in those terms. So one thing that you just said, Jeremy, that was really interesting, uh, and it reminded me of, of some of the rhetoric I think, at least, or my read on some of the rhetoric um, of the uh, about the campaigns, sort of on Facebook and Twitter, even, is how often it seemed to me uh, people would compare uh, uh, Trump's kind of charismatic populism, call it. I sp- that that doesn't feel right necessarily, but his sort of his style of charisma actually to that of of Adolf Hitler. I I just remember seeing a lot of memes and things like this. And of course, there are a lot of political reasons that someone would, um, uh, someone on the left say, or someone just sort of anti-Trump would make that characterization. Um, I guess, what do you think of that? Is it the case that uh, if if any politician uh, sort of takes on the tone or takes the approach of uh, charismatic populism that he or she will be uh, compared with Hitler? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I actually think, for one thing, it's not all that common to see charismatic politicians compared with Hitler. Certainly, Huey Long was compared with Hitler in the 1930s, as was Father Coughlin. And and Father Coughlin uh, really, as far as I can tell, modeled his speaking style off of Hitler. So that comparison was Mm. completely fair. Um, But since then, uh, there tend to be other Uh, comparisons that are made. So, for instance, Barack Obama ran a very charismatic campaign in 2008, including a rally in Berlin where he was cheered by a million people chanting his name. And John McCain ran an ad against Obama called Celebrity, in which he compared Obama not to uh, Hitler, but to Britney Spears and Paris Hilton, which I thought Mm. was very interesting from a gender perspective. Um, And the comparison with Hitler, I think, I think people make a mistake when they compare politicians with Hitler because of their style. I think the more important comparison involves substance. So um, I had a student explain this to me very well. I, I love it when my students uh, explain my research better than I do. <laughs> um, and so I asked the students this question, what is the difference between William Jennings Bryan and Adolf Hitler? And this student said the difference is that Adolf Hitler was using charisma to promote hate, and William Jennings Bryan was using charisma to promote policy. He was essentially trying to get laws passed. And so I think when we evaluate politicians based on their use of charisma, it's it's not the emotional appeals that we should be concerned about. It's the content of what they have to say that really matters. So a, a major figure um, at the end of the age of charisma that who you describe in your book uh, was the famous Baltimore Sun editorialist H.L. Mencken. Uh, I, I really like some of your passages about him. So he was deeply skeptical and, in fact, mocked the politics of emotional appeal or the politics of charisma as being sort of 
of the herd or of the mob and, and the masses. A, a couple of nice... Or, or, or what he calls the bourgeoisie. <laughs> so I, I, actually, that's perfect because I have just a couple of nice lines that you cite of his. One, um, quote, all that is necessary to raise a piece of imbecility into what the mob regards as a piece of profundity is to lift it off the floor and put it on a platform. Uh, as well, uh, uh, Mencken writes of Theodore Roosevelt that uh, uh, Roosevelt had, quote, the persuasive charm of the charlatan. So this, this posture of skepticism toward emotional appeal um, might be might be healthy at certain times, um, uh, one would imagine. And, and especially last year, I think we saw how it persists in the kind of commentator class or among the editorialists at major papers and on television. Did this pervasive attitude of skepticism about um, a certain kind of charisma that uh, commentators might call demagoguery, did that allow critics to miss the political power of Trump? That's a good question. I think that critics can't really be blamed for missing the political power of Trump because something like this has simply never happened before in American history. I mean, I I wrote an essay about four or five months before the election on the Society for U.S. Intellectual History blog, arguing that this was uh, a realignment election, that it was an election that was going to change the issues that Americans were talking about and change the composition of political parties. But I certainly didn't think Donald Trump was going to win. I don't know anyone who thought Donald Trump was going to win, except apparently Keith Ellison in that quote that mm. <laughs> keeps yeah. being circulated on, on television. Um, I think that they missed the, the emotional appeal, but I think that they also – I think it's it's in the nature of, uh, of people who cover politics to assume that things will be as they always have been. And mm. what has always happened in American history is that people with political experience, people with some sort of roots in the party that they are running in, uh, win elections. And I'm not convinced that – they missed that because of their skepticism toward Trump's emotion. That said, I do think that um, that the, the commentators were a little slow to pick up on this because um, because this style that Trump was using, because of what was going on at his rallies, because of what was going on at Bernie Sanders' rallies, is such an old political style because it's something that we really haven't seen in any meaningful way in almost 100 years. I think it makes sense that they that, that reporters were not aware of the, the power of this style um, or that they wouldn't have expected it to seriously challenge advertised politics. Hmm. So then I guess I guess just to put that general question um, just directly so we can jump back into what we were talking about right at the beginning of this conversation. So can we use some of the arguments of your book to understand how election 2016 did in fact turn out? So asking that, I have in mind a couple lines from your book, both from the introduction and conclusion. The first line reminds me of President Trump's campaign. Quote, behavior often interpreted as showboating or demagoguery was actually a calculated effort by leaders to harness the power of charisma for the benefit of their personal or policy platforms. So that sounds like it could have been true for Trump's campaign. Frankly, it sounds like it could be true for the way Trump has governed, President Trump has governed, and likely will continue to govern. So does that resonate with your reading of his campaign and his strategy? 
I think that that helps to explain the effect of what happened. I'm not necessarily convinced that Trump was aware that he was going to be able to use this type of charisma that had worked so well for him on reality TV to win a presidential election. I'm not convinced he thought he had a chance when he started. Um, and I'm not convinced he thought he had a chance all the way up until the election. I think he was as surprised as anyone else when he won the election. Um, so I'm not convinced that Trump is some sort of genius politically, but I think he has some brilliant instincts. And I think his instinct to appeal to the emotions of people and not to to be concerned about necessarily conveying all the details of his policy platforms. I think that's a smart instinct. And of course, he had the perfect foil in Hillary Clinton, someone uh, for whom no discussion of policy is too great to launch into mm. and who 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 adores the, the, the nitty gritty of political details um, was was really the perfect opponent for Trump to use that style against. So then this line uh, that I'm about to quote from your book uh, reminds me of of Clinton, uh, that is to say, it calls to mind one of her campaign's oversights. Um, and the line is that one of the Age of Charisma's most lasting legacies is that, quote, leaders owed something of themselves to their followers and that emotional availability rather than emotional remoteness was a prerequisite for democratic leadership, end quote. So that, that line sounds uh, like it's related to a common critique of Clinton's campaign, that she and her uh, and her campaign staff uh, um, felt well felt very self consciously constructed, sort of piece by piece, like a product that was going to be rolled out, um, and that that seemed like a, it was a critique uh, often of her campaign that it was sort of remote to a lot of people, though certainly not to everyone. Was that one of the causes of her loss, in your view? I think that it contributed, but I'm not sure that we can blame Clinton for this. I actually think a lot of it has to do with the way charisma is gendered in our society. Mm. I think Clinton herself addressed this very effectively in an interview with, of all people, the uh, Facebook page Humans of New York, when she she said, essentially, people say that I should be more emotional, but when I am more emotional, they're afraid of me because I'm a woman. And so I discovered that as a woman in politics, you can't be emotional in that way. Now, that said, there are women politicians who are more emotional today. I would say Elizabeth Warren is more emotional. I would say uh, Sarah Palin is more emotional. Um, but the difference is that Hillary Clinton has been in politics longer than those two women. She's been in politics since the, really as a first lady, since the 1970s. And she has been around since a time when this, this type of emotion was was really a death sentence for a female political figure. And so I think she's completely justified in not having used that type of emotion. What makes me more uncomfortable is when she argues against the importance of emotion in politics. Mm. Uh, I think one of the most troubling things I heard in the campaign was in August of 2015 when Clinton it said to a group of Black Lives Matter uh, activists, I don't believe you change hearts, I believe you change laws. And I thought that that was just the most wrongheaded way of thinking about politics that I'd ever heard, because you can't change laws without changing hearts. You, you can't get people to support something that they don't currently support unless you change their view on it first. And I understand that Clinton had some real limitations on this because of the way people view charisma and gender. This is something that came up in my research, actually. Um, the, the, these horrible attacks on women for 
uh, trying to use charismatic styles that were that were really embraced by by men. There's a famous quote by Henry Adams saying, and I'm going to get this wrong, but it's it's something like uh, that listening to a woman speak is like listening to uh, the the moo of the cow, the bray of the ass, or the bark of the dog. Wow. And that really is the attitude that a lot of people had toward charisma in the late 1900s, late 1800s. And it's those attitudes persist. And so it's very difficult, I think, for a female candidate to use these styles and to be emotional in a way that doesn't terrify men. Hmm. So... So I, in in the article, I think you're talking about where you you just you you critique uh, Clinton's sort of aversion to that kind of politics, to her ceding the sort of political theater to Trump. Um, but you, you go on to write uh, that quote: "As the reality television star takes office, Democrats face a stark reality. They will continue to lose until they rediscover the historical politics of emotion liberals once championed." Uh, what would it mean for a liberal in the tradition of Clinton to embrace a politics of emotion? Because it does seem like like that kind of center leftism is more naturally uh, focused on a certain kind of of policy wonkery uh, rather than any kind of policy po- populism. Excuse me. Uh, so so like, what would a center left or liberal politics of charisma look like? Would it just kind of be Obama in 2008 again? I think, actually, that we have a lot of good examples of uh, of that sort of politics. Obama in 2008 is maybe not as good an example, because I think Obama ran as one kind of candidate and governed as another. Uh, but a much better example is Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, was very charismatic. And in fact, if you've ever seen Bill Clinton work a room, he's he's much more charismatic in person even than he is on television. Um, but Clinton's charisma was all focused on emotional style. It was it was it was not about the policies. And I think that is that is the key. I think you can apply charisma. Charisma is a tool. It can be applied to any set of policies that you want to apply it to, including center-left neoliberal policies. So uh, Bill Clinton had this, this famous technique that he would use where he would uh, bring somebody, he'd, do, he'd have his staffers find someone who was personally affected by a policy that he wanted to promote, and he'd bring them to a debate or to a speech. And then he would, during the debate or the speech, he would talk about the policy that he wanted, and he would point that person out in the audience and say, this is this is so-and-so, and this is... The approach that they use, and or, or excuse me, this is the these are the what they need and why they need this law. And I'm proud that this person is here today. Let's give them a round of applause. And it was very emotionally affecting. Mm. It's not exactly the charismatic style, but it's a focus on emotion. Re- really, the the most important thing I think is to simply embrace the idea that emotion is how you win elections, rather than by focusing on facts and evidence. Um, another example that I would give is going on in France right now, the now front-running presidential candidacy in France of Emmanuel Macron, who is a neoliberal center-left investment banker turned populist hero who may be the next president of France. So I think it's very doable. I don't think it's necessarily limited by the particular ideas that are being promoted. I think it's only limited by the imagination of the particular candidate and their staff. So one thing you mentioned just a few moments ago was um, FDR's use of the fireside chats as a kind of way to make to, to make use of 
um, the politics of charisma without sort of being over the top. Uh, and you write in your conclusion, uh, quote, while charismatic speakers on national tours are no longer ubiquitous, the leader-follower model developed by uh, Franklin Roosevelt in which Americans experience an intimate emotional connection with a leader via mass communication technologies has continued to thrive. So I'm wondering, in what manners has it continued to thrive? Uh, which recent politicians would you say have sort of upheld this tradition to good effect? And, and I'm wondering in particular about um, uh, President Trump's use of Twitter. Um, uh, is, do you think that he uses that medium in part as a kind of fireside chat, even though it would obviously, it would be different in many obvious ways? He's still maintaining <laughs> like a regular emotional connection with his followers and with his um his supporters well i think what i meant by that is not so much uh the 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 fact that people are inspired by this or that politician but simply the fact that politicians have to interact with people on an emotional level and i'm actually less interested in the politicians who do it well than i am in the politicians who do it poorly an example i like to use is john Kerry, right um i Despite the fact that many people didn't find Hillary Clinton particularly charismatic, I know a number of people who were very inspired by Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know anyone who was inspired by John Kerry. Um, and yet, John Kerry had to do all of the things that presidential candidates do. He had to go out and shake hands and kiss babies and do all of those sort of emotional things and go to dinners and you know work at soup kitchens. And that we, we, we wouldn't even imagine, we can't even imagine what would happen if John Kerry had simply said, I'm not good at this, so I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to sit at home and run some ads and be elected president. <laughs> we would think that he was impossibly snooty, that he d believed he was better than the voters. And so every politician, I think, has to do this. They have to try to connect with, with voters, even if they're not good at it, because simply the act of trying is the way that they nod to this type of democracy that is part of our democratic system mm. now since the age of charisma. As for Trump's use of Twitter, I'll be honest, I don't think it's particularly effective. I think that his use of Twitter uh, has has hurt him uh, more than it's helped him. I think that we, we often, because Trump was able to do something no one's ever done before, he was able to rise from the ranks of the non-political, he was able to say things that no one's ever been able to say and get away with, and become president, we tend to assume that everything that Trump did was genius. And I think it was actually a very interesting mix of genius and foolishness. Um, I don't think, for instance, Trump going after Kizer Khan for an entire week during the, the, the general election was a particularly effective strategy. And in fact, the polls bore that out. The polls suggested that his his um, his numbers were were down during that week when he did that. And similarly, whenever he goes on on a on a Twitter rant, um, his numbers go down. I don't think that he's communicating effectively because of Twitter. I think he's communicating effectively in spite of Twitter. You know, it 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 occurs to me one of the awkward things. People always say that I wrote this book at the perfect time because of Trump, but in some ways, I think this election is sort of an anomaly that disproves some of my book in that, or, or doesn't disprove it, but uh, but counteracts it in that. I think this was an election that was very much based on policy, despite all the stylistic things that we see. I think that it's very telling that Donald Trump is less popular than his policies are. Um, so, for instance, the the so-called Muslim ban, 
which uh, a lot of liberals were very upset about. Um, polls came out saying initially that it had 48% support, and at the same time, the same polls said that Donald Trump had less than 40% support. So here's a politician who's, who's promoting things that may be horrifying to liberals, but that are actually somewhat popular in the country, but the politician himself is less popular. Mm. That doesn't suggest to me that Trump won because of some kind of magical alchemy of his, of his politics. It suggests that he won because he was saying things and appealing to, to, to ideas and to policies at some, some rhetorical level that people felt weren't being uh, discussed by other candidates. One person you've been you've you've mentioned at least a couple times in your remarks uh, is Bernie Sanders, and I want to ask a question about him uh, because it is the case that uh, the populist energy or the charismatic energy was n- obviously not just behind Donald Trump in 2016. It was, of course, to a certain extent, behind uh, Hillary Clinton, and it was on the left behind uh, Bernie Sanders. And I think really the only time Trump and Sanders were spoken about in the same breath in 2016 was when they were jointly called populist, though perhaps they were populist in really different ways. So how about Sanders? Do you think that the left, the kind of Sanders left, could gain as much mainstream traction as Trump did if Sanders had Trump's particular kind of charisma? So I guess another way of putting the question is, did Sanders' version of populism not take hold as intensely simply because he didn't harness the same kind of populist charisma, sort of American style, as Trump did? I really don't think that's the case. I would say almost the opposite. I think that Sanders' style, although I don't find it particularly charismatic, I think it was more effective than Trump's was. And that may be a bit of a radical thing to say, given how successful Trump was. But I think that the the proof is in the poll numbers. Bernie Sanders has been, for the last almost a year, the most popular politician in the United States, and Donald Trump is one of the less popular politicians in the United States. I think that Sanders was able to outperform what perhaps would have been the natural uh, amount of support that his ideas would have generated because people saw him as an honest broker, a straight Mm -hmm. shooter. Um, Sanders' charisma, um, I, I read a really good explanation of it, from someone who knew him in Vermont, who was a staffer of his in Vermont, who said that the reason that Sanders was so effective as a politician was because he had the best message discipline of any politician anywhere. Bernie Sanders will always talk about the same set of issues, right? He wants to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. He wants free college for for uh, students all across the country. He wants uh, single-payer health care. And there are a couple of other issues that he'll talk about. And he, he always talks about the same issues. And in an age of poll testing and carefully crafted messaging, that comes across to voters as really authentic. And I think a lot of voters who even disagree with Sanders are drawn to that authenticity. A similar phenomenon, uh, I think, is something that we saw with Ron Paul in the last uh, couple of election cycles. A lot of people who don't necessarily agree with his ideas, at least at first, drawn to him because of the sense that he's a straight shooter, he's, he's an ordinary guy who, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And I think that that was, that sort of rumpled uh, honesty was very effective for Sanders, and so in many ways more effective than what Trump was doing. I think he didn't win because he, because, because of the way primaries are structured and the fact that he was running for president in a, in a party that wasn't necessarily committed to his ideas. Um, but I don't think it was because of a lack of charisma. 
So I'll just ask then another question about the legacy of uh, uh, of the Age of Charisma straight away, um, because to my understanding, you might be working on this particular topic. Uh, is is another one of the legacies of the Age of Charisma the kind of peddling of fake news? Right. So I had an essay that came out actually just a couple of days ago uh, in Weir History about um, the way that, that, that fake news and charisma are linked. And ultimately, my argument is not that charisma causes fake news, but that charisma, uh, that sort of anti-charismatic sentiments uh, are part of fake news. This, I think, goes to the central uh, argument of my book, which is that charisma and emotional politics are not anti-democratic, but are, in, in fact, the essence of democracy, that, that, that many people uh, engage in democracy through their emotions rather than through their uh, through their reason. And so you see in the 1920s, a lot of figures such as Edward Bernays, Walter Lippmann, uh, the psychologist John Brodus Watson, um, and, and a number of others oppose charisma because they see it as an inefficient means of controlling the public. They, they want to use generally advertising, and in Watson's case, uh, stimulus and response uh, they, but they want to use these techniques to control the public and manipulate them so that the that experts can control the country. And they don't like charisma as a tool for that because charisma is actually very democratic, uh, at least according to them. Charisma it, it is, is only effective if the leader is promoting things that the followers want. And if the followers don't want what the leader is selling, then the leader loses elections because the leader um, is not able to survive without that kind of charismatic army at his back. And so uh, I think that fake news uh, comes from the same point of view that these anti-charismatic uh, advertisers did in the 1920s in that it, it assumes that democratic deliberation and that popular engagement with government is not valuable and is, is something that, that should be done away with in the name of advancing policies and leaders no matter what the public thinks. Another another issue or, or question that I understand you've been working on um, is uh, is the significance of charisma in African American political life, uh, and right. and your writing on this it reminds me. I mean, it's similar to the the point that you made about um, uh, Hillary Clinton's interview um, with Humans of New York that, uh, in large part, she couldn't embrace a politics of charisma because of in a sense, white male fear of it. Uh, this is, is something similar true uh, with uh, charisma in African-American political life. You've examined Booker T. Washington in this light. Could you talk about that? What is, what is the significance of charisma? Right. So Booker T. Washington is, a, is, a, is an interesting exception that proves the rule because Washington, almost alone, not entirely alone, among African-American charismatic speakers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was very popular with white audiences. He would speak in front of a white audience and they would describe him as a, quote, Negro Moses. Uh, and they would they would say all of these sort of religious rhetoric things about him that you see voters of William Jennings Bryan saying about him or, or followers of ministers like Billy Sunday. And the reason, of course, that they were that white audiences were so supportive of Washington was because he was saying everything they wanted to hear. He was volunteering to give up uh, all forms of equality with whites in exchange for vocational training for African-Americans. 
And when African-American leaders have tried to use charisma to advocate for equality, they have more often than not faced violence, faced opposition, and simply a lack of support from white audiences. Uh, the exception, of course, is Martin Luther King, who was very charismatic and who gained a lot of support for civil rights. But the argument that I make in this, this essay you're talking about is that um, Martin Luther King was successful in doing that largely because he was trying to appeal to northern whites uh, to help end racism in the South. And once he began to appeal to northern whites to help end racism in the North, they turned on him. Um, that because they were threatened by his use of charisma to advocate for racial equality. So, Jeremy, I know I, I've got to let you go soon, but I do just have a few questions about you. Um, first, where sure. did where, where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up all over the place. I was born in Los Angeles, uh, grew up in northern Arizona, uh, and then went to college in uh, Maryland at St. Mary's College of Maryland. Uh, and graduate school at Indiana University. So, so then what gave rise to your interest in American history? I think at some level I've always been interested in history. I, when I was in sixth grade, I was asked to write a short report on the history of the Roman Empire, and it ended up being 36 handwritten pages just because I wanted to. <laughs> and I kind of always knew that history was, was interesting to me. But my plan when I went to college was actually to be a classical pianist. Um, and what, uh, what happened was about halfway through college, I realized that I didn't particularly enjoy practicing, and I thought that that was not a good thing for since practicing would be about 95% of what I did as a classical pianist. Uh, and I discovered that instead, what I really enjoyed was writing. I really liked writing history papers in for my classes. And as far as why I became interested in American history, as I said, I, my original interest was in ancient history. But I, I decided to focus on American history, I think, because of my interest in politics, because I, I, I was frustrated by some of the things that I saw Politically, even as a college student, I was frustrated by um, by the the left's or or the Democratic Party's uh, lack of embrace of emotions. Um, I was a fanatical supporter in college of Howard Dean, um, and I was uh, very unhappy by what happened to him. Not just that he lost the the primary in 2004, but that uh, he was basically attacked to death for having screamed in the middle of a rally. Right. Um, <laughs> when, when you know he was simply reflecting the emotion of the crowd. That was that and, uppercut thing that got sort of made fun of, or did he? Did, it was like he was saying like we're gonna go here, we're gonna go there, and he kind of like let out some kind of battle cry. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he did it because that's what the audience was doing. Right. And I think it was it was a very emotional moment, and it was just attacked to death. And I wanted to say something about that, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that. But I thought that I wanted to talk about American history and recent American history because I, I wanted to, to be able to say things historically that could influence political strategy um, in modern politics. And it took me a long time of trying to figure out how to do that. I was originally going to write a book about Woodrow Wilson, and then I was convinced by my advisor correctly that I didn't really have anything new to say about Woodrow Wilson, and he helped me realize that I, what I really needed to, to talk about was the emotions that these 
figures I was so interested in in the progressive era were evoking in their followers. And that ultimately is what I was able to do. And I do think that I was able to write the book that I wanted to write. It just took a long time. So when you started doing research on the age of charisma, did you or had you at that moment any sense of the sea change that seemed to be happening or that was going to happen in American politics toward emotional appeal and the politics of charisma? Or in a sense, did did the release of your book just coincidentally, or rather, did, did the release of your book coincide with this sea change? Well, I didn't know that Donald Trump was going to be elected president. Right. <laughs> I don't think anyone did. But I, I do think I felt at some instinctual level that there was some something wrong in our politics, that people were suffering and that they, they wanted some kind of dramatic change and that politicians, because of their exclusion of emotion from the public sphere, were missing that and were, were going about politics as usual, really, in both parties without attending to that really deep and important emotional current. And my hope, really, from the very beginning, ever since I was in college and, and supported Howard Dean, was that someone would emerge on the left who would be able to channel that emotion effectively into the White House and would then be able to, to change policy in the direction I was most comfortable with. And ultimately, I think what I, what I hoped would happen did happen, but it was someone on the right instead who, did, who used those techniques, Donald Trump. So then what questions do you think you're going to have for the near future of American politics, given your work on charisma? Do you think that the resurgence of this particular brand of, um, of charisma is here to stay? And if so, what do you think the left will have to do in order to move toward that model, if that is necessary for them to do? Well, I think the Democratic Party is at a crossroads right now. I think that Democrats really need to... Uh, to recognize how important emotions are. They need to recognize that they can't win simply with facts. If they could, um, they would have won already. <laughs> um, there's this wonderful quote from Adlai Stevenson, uh, and I think that it's true. Uh, a voter came up to Adlai Stevenson when he was running for president in the 1950s and said, Governor Stevenson, every thinking man in America is for you. And Stevenson uh, looked at him and said, that's not enough. I need a majority. <laughs> and, and there's another quote that I like, actually, from my research from uh, Henry Ward Beecher, who was the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and who was probably the most effective of all of the charismatic speakers that I studied. Beecher said there are in every congregation, and he's talking about um, he's talking about religious charisma here, uh, probably six to one who prefer the emotional part of the sermon to the rational part. And he says that they deserve to be fed by their hearts as much as the others deserve to be fed by their reason. And I think that really gets to the heart of what I'm promoting here. I think the Democratic Party needs to embrace the idea of emotional politics um, they need to embrace the idea that just because someone can't uh, rattle off every detail of a policy doesn't mean that they aren't a good voter or a good citizen, um, and that if people experience politics emotionally rather than rationally, then they need politicians who can channel their emotions into productive political directions. And I think Democrats really have to decide whether this is something that they're going to embrace or not. Jeremy Young, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Jeremy Young, author of Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society from 1860 to 1940. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often just called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. Oh, what a year it's been. Oh, what a month it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.